things are a bit upside down at the moment and uh, I'm doing this in the morning. Uh, I usually save these episodes for late at night when the city is quiet but New York has been quiet for so long and uh, last night was so eerily quiet uh, that I, it's funny, I didn't sleep, I kind of just uh, was anxious and when you're that sort of uh, tense anywhere, um, doesn't matter, Beirut, New York, Minneapolis, wherever, Los Angeles, all the cities that we've been seeing in the U.S. Uh, struggling at the moment. Uh, I, I think uh, I think uh, it's sort of it's healthy to pause a bit, and whenever I pause, <laughs> I end up going back to Beirut. <laughs> At least in my mind and I should just say a few things here first I apologize that the lighting is not great because I am doing this early in the morning so the the brightness of the room I guess does not lend itself well to the video I'll also apologize something that I don't know if I should apologize for this but I dropped the camera and uh, I had to kind of put it back together and I noticed there was some damage to the lens and the video settings are kind of flimsy at the moment, so I have no clue if this will come out okay. I hope it does. I know I noticed that it was blurry several times when I started trying to record this. So if I'm maybe the less visible I am right now, the better. It's early in the morning, and I don't I don't look uh, particularly uh, pleasant, um, or at least I don't think I look great. Maybe maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'm shining at the moment. I don't know. I don't think I am. I'm, I'm tired. And I'm talking to a broken camera in a city under curfew last night. Uh, and let alone coronavirus, COVID-19, New York being the epicenter. And just having so much time alone. And uh, maybe the, the, the only benefit to having experienced this level of uh, physical distancing and staying indoors in isolation is uh, productivity and uh, I've been working extra hard I think I'm working harder on the podcast now than I was when I was in Beirut during the protests so I'm you know spending 15 hours a day between recording and editing and, and working on something special that will be released uh, shortly in the next few days maybe a week I don't know um, I'm making sure it comes out just right this long introduction. I don't know if it's suitable or not for the issue that I want to uh, get into. I think it somehow is because I just was thinking what brought me here and what brought me to where I am today at least, and I'll say this with uh, a lot of caution, uh, on a professional level because I know that people sort of have nine to five jobs or maybe eight to eight jobs i know people uh, tend to think of work as going to an office most of the time i know there's a lot of gig jobs the gig economy laptop cafe stuff but even that i think is more it's more professional if that word is used right professional than 
I think than what I do because uh, I still look at what they they do and I look in in admiration like how this is uh, so hard but uh, maybe I maybe for that maybe that's actually that says it all that I I love what I do keeps me stable keeps me uh, financially sound and uh, maybe that's all you need just follow your passion but what brought me here so I'm turning 39 in a few days Um, I'm heavily invested in this type of storytelling and um, that's all I do it's just what I do storytelling but the moment that brought me here where's that sort of that uh, shift I think it's exactly 15 years ago 15 years ago to the day June 2nd 2005 this episode would include coffee because I am so tired so excuse me while I while I uh, caffeinate myself a bit in the middle of the uh, climactic moment but I have to stay awake it's funny because 15 years ago I was doing the same thing having a cup of coffee in Sessin at the chase I don't think it's there anymore you know or maybe it is the last time I went through Sessin earlier this year I, I, I don't know, actually, man, it's probably gone. This is uh, the chase before Starbucks opened in Sessin, just next to the Bashir Jmail, uh, whatever, the, 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 the plaque of Bashir Jmail. I almost spilled the coffee on the laptop. <laughs> That's what happens. Curfew, Corona. <laughs> Eight in the morning episode, trying to put my mind, uh, trying to think through a story. Camera breaks, laptop breaks, the podcast is gone. So wherever you're on, we're getting there. Um, at the chase, I was sitting down, reading a book for pleasure. It's not for anything else but pleasure. But the book I turned to for pleasure is a very sad story. And it's it's a book by the late author Fuad Ajami the dream palace of the arabs and it's the first chapter of the book it's about beirut and it's a book about a poet who lived in ras beirut a poet who dedicated his life to trying i think to explain his own personal story and the story of ras beirut and and beirut and lebanon in general uh and ended up killing himself at the onset of the Israeli invasion, 1982. Um, the poet's name is Khalil Hawi. And uh, the first chapter, I think it's, maybe the first chapter is an introduction, but the the second chapter, or at least the, the first sort of proper story in the book uh, is about that poet in Beirut. And it's just pure storytelling, but it's history and its politics, and its society, and its social affairs, and its identity, and its religion, and its 
it's everything ottoman history mandate history pan-syrian nationalism arab nationalism lebanese nationalism all things nationalism all things not and ras beirut in a sense being a bubble that continues to shrink it was a little bigger uh at the time of his uh well i mean even let alone his suicide but when he was uh, an aub professor so i have this book and uh i'll just say it quickly here that i know Fuad hajami was a quote controversial author uh, more controversial, I think, in his home country, Lebanon, and in, in the region than in the U.S., where he eventually uh, spent most of his life writing about that part of the world. So, politics aside, especially his preferences for American sort of uh, politics, let's say, or American foreign policy in certain stages of history, you can debate that all you want. I think it's a healthy debate, actually. That aside, the man could write a great story. And I don't know if it's still in print. Uh, I know you can buy it on ebooks. I got this at a time of no ebooks. Just you get the, get the book. And I believe I got this from Antoine, sort of in. Uh, yeah, I think I actually bought it from Antoine Library. Went to the chase, sat down, got the book, started reading the book, and maybe five or six pages into the story? I really don't remember. It's just the flash, and then the shake, and the panic, and the echo, the, that rumble that's familiar in Beirut, uh, the screaming, people running. I think most of the people that were near uh, the car bomb that took Samir Asir's life that, that day, I think most of us quickly realized this was a, like a, a bomb. This was a, a, it was a target. It wasn't just a uh, random explosion. But this is pre-social media. This is pre-iPhone. This is before all of that stuff. So you just, you literally would run. And I made my way home. And uh, I, within maybe a few hours, I guess, on the news, they said that, it was Samir Asir who was killed. And I realized I forgot the book at the chase, the cafe. So I just literally tossed it and ran. Samir Asir, uh, I didn't know him personally, but I did run into him. Uh, he was a fixture in certain places, and I, I think I... Um, Ran into him either a day or two before his assassination in Hamra. The, the timing is a bit off now, but I saw him in Hamra once. I, I'd see him in sort of different settings, but I, I never really approached him and introduced myself or even wanted to bother him. I admired him, and I think uh, that type of admiration you want to just sort of uh, 
don't want to bother the person. I think in, in, in Beirut, people tend to bother a lot and they sort of uh, throw their ideas onto anyone with, with certain ideas and I just sort of uh, just wanted to admire him at a distance. But I did sort of get, I was lucky. I was close in that sense physically to him at certain uh, moments and I uh, got to witness his charisma and um, I think without realizing it I fell in love with Beirut the moment he died. I say this in hindsight because 15 years later all I think about is Beirut's past, Beirut's story and I try to sort of piece the puzzle back together, maybe sometimes I take the puzzle apart and try to examine it piece by piece. All stages of Lebanese history, all things that relate and still link to Beirut, I mean this is what I do. I. Uh, I know this, this opinion is shared among many that knew Samir Asir personally, and I guess it's the conclusion, which is, he was a very decent man, an honest man, and uh, not a politician, not a uh, traditional Lebanese politician, traditional, modern Lebanese politician, the way we, the way we think of them. And uh, he was an intellect, a historian, an author, um, a cafe sort of guy and uh, a French writer who could write in Arabic and uh, who would have his books translated to English at times and maybe they, uh, they don't uh, always click in English but that's just the curse of these kinds of translations I, I think uh, had I been a French had I been great in French let alone in Arabic I probably would enjoy his, his writing that much more but I, I only experienced his writing in English and I love it so I uh, I at the time was I had worked at the UN I was doing a Masters of International Affairs at George Washington University's Elliott School so I, I was sort of leaving going to, to Washington DC ended up doing a publications internship at the Middle East Institute. It's funny because, you know, 15 years ago, you should have seen what the Middle East Institute was like. And now, now I sort of did several episodes that uh, sort of guests, and I went to the Middle East Institute to do some of these episodes and, and uh, sort of just uh, got to see what, uh, what it looks like now. It's a fundamentally different place. All that aside, though, I, uh, I just, it didn't click. I, I tried academia. I tried the think tank circuit. I tried the UN. I, I worked at the UN. Uh, I even, uh, I mean, I got myself into the NGO world at, at some point. Didn't do it for me. Uh, I kept thinking back to, I kept thinking back to, I guess, the the shock of losing someone who was so dedicated to Beirut 
And then witnessing it myself, watching my father let go of his re-established career at the IMF, putting it all away, tossing it aside, negotiating his way out uh, at the same time in June of 2005, hell-bent on going back to Beirut and trying once more to rebuild Lebanon in his limited capacity, whether his advisory role, whether it's his economics background, or whether it's his diplomatic career as an ambassador, or even just trying to, trying to, trying to find a way forward for Lebanon, where that the string of assassinations that was starting, Rafiq Hariri in February, <clears throat> and then Samir Asir in June, George Hewi, and then of course the long list of assassinations afterwards, but I, I sensed my father was so, I mean, uh, uninterested in staying in the U.S. then. He wanted to rush back to Beirut, and he did. So it's, it's Samir Asir, and then I see my father, a man I, I deeply respected and, and admired, not just because he's my father, but I really, uh, I, I sort of, uh, I, 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 I knew what he was doing, and I felt it. I was younger. I was younger, but I, uh, I understand it completely. And he took that opportunity and went back. I, uh, I couldn't finish my master's degree at George Washington. I just didn't have it in me. I mean, I just couldn't imagine uh, basing myself in D.C. while witnessing what was happening in Lebanon. And I didn't want to. I actually wanted to be in a place where I felt at home and also my father, his, his love for Lebanon and his passion was infectious and I, I wanted to be there. I went back. I went back and I arrived two or three days before the summer war, July 2006. Uh, yeah, that's a whole different chapter, but uh, that forced me to make a decision. Uh, I literally said, that's it, I'm out. I'm out of George Washington. I'm, I'm out of any sort of U.S.-based job. I'm going to stay and, and work in Lebanon and find a way forward in Lebanon. And that summer, I volunteered at Zico House with a group called Samidun, uh, hygiene kit distribution, and I made some friends that summer just sort of by, by, by accident. Just sort of, you know, every day you'd show up at Zico House, this sort of building, NGO, and, uh, you know, just like a, a center, Merkaz, for all these sort of groupings to show up and do their uh, daily routine. I did hygiene kit distribution, and I sort of indirectly worked with Oxfam, and... Uh, it made sense to me. And uh, I transferred over to AUB. Ended up getting my master's degree at AUB. Took some time. But it took some time for the reasons that I'm going to get into, which is even then at AUB, sort of feeling obligated to finish a master's degree. Uh, I kept going back to this sort of 
storytelling craft that I enjoyed. And it's funny, I've been holding this book the whole time. I ended up emailing this man, Fouad Hajami, telling him, telling him that I, uh, I love the story. And um, we would end up writing emails back and forth for several years. But I wanted him to know that I was literally sort of taken by his, by his chapter on Khalil Hawi, a man who dies, kills himself in the middle of an Israeli invasion, watching uh, the events unfold in front of me with Samir Asir's assassination and just, you know, running away from it, but at the same time, you know, wanting to head back to it and, and, and find a way forward and kind of just heal wounds, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, we corresponded for a few years. And I'm doing a master's degree on, uh, on uh, trying to finish a thesis. But uh, I ended up literally just storytelling. I, I used to manage a hostel in, uh, in Beirut, a student pension, at the end of Bliss Street, just next to Mekhfar Hbesh, the uh, Yusuf Hbesh, or the Ras Beirut police station. Um, small two-story building, uh, old rent, managed by the nephew of Kamal Salibi, a well-known Lebanese historian, a, uh, a storyteller on, uh, to his own. I mean, he's just a fantastic, he was a fantastic writer and a very <laughs> fantastic uh, man to sit next to and just let him rant about all things that were happening. I got the chance to do that several times, thanks to his nephew. But uh, I, I wanted to honor Samir Asir, and I ended up crafting the Walk Beirut tour around his story. It starts with Daniel Bliss, and that sort of the the sort of shift in Ottoman legacy, if you will, sort of the rapid move that would usher in the 20th century and all things that we associate with modern Lebanese history, I would start at that point. Daniel Bliss opening the Syrian Protestant College on Bliss Street. And I would end it with the tragic end of Samir Asir. And I would put all the storytelling sort of stories, if you will, in between, and I'd link them together in a way that was enjoyable. And it took time, but I found a way to do it. And it was clear to me, even at the beginning, after trying it many different ways and making sure that this is it, but I was, I was sure then, I should end the tour with Samir Asir. And when I say that, I mean next to his, uh, his statue, next to Annahar newspaper, adjacent to Martyrs Square. Now it's time for water. You know, eight in the morning isn't bad for doing uh, an episode. But you just need to mix it up with some coffee as well. It would be very tragic if I sort of fell asleep in the middle of the episode and it keeps recording and then it's released. Maybe that would be the most viewed episode. He finally shuts up and fell asleep. I got lucky because uh, 
Samir Asir's book, Histoire de Beirut, or Tarikh Beirut, History of Beirut, uh, was translated to English. And this bad boy, um, you know? I thought this is the way you end the tour by asking a guest, ideally a guest who's not too fluent in either this man's writings, or for that matter, uh, has not just sort of an innocence, if you will. You can kind of gauge who really wants to do this, and their linguistic skills are secondary. I would end the tour with uh, asking somebody, and this is among 50 or 60 guests at a time, to read quotes from Samir Asir's uh, literature and his writings, article pieces, and his books. And they're engraved on the ledge next to a statue. Hence, the Walk Beirut ticket. And this one is from 2011. I have, I have many of these scattered in different places. Um, you know, I turned them into a bookmark. I'd always give them at the start of the tour without people knowing what this is. There's no reference to Samir Asir here. It's just quotes in Arabic and in French. And I tell the guests, hold on to this. It'll make sense later. Hours later, we're right next to Samir Asir, bringing his story to life. And I'm sharing this book. Okay? And uh, I would only share the, uh, the front flap. I actually had a copy. I tore the flap. I put it in my bag because this is a heavy book. And it's not easy. It's not easy to carry this around for hours on end, especially when you have other things to carry too for the tour. So I would force my assistant, I force, I'd not really force here, but I would, uh, I would kindly request my assistant to, uh, to carry this for me. And uh, while, you know, taking photos, this would be in either the assistant's bag or it'd be in like sort of a, a separate sort of, it would be, it wouldn't be visible. That was the purpose, that no one, would, no one would see this. So it was hidden from view. But I'd carry a copy every tour. And uh, ending the tour at Samir Asir, if you got the quotes right, and if you could project the quote, and uh, in particular one quote, which has been said on this podcast several times, if you've been on the tour, you've heard it before. عَوْدُوا if you could do it, and if you could project, if you were confident in your uh, in your ability to project Samir Asir's words, his voice, echo it, echo it. I mean, I mean, really, just shout it at the top of your lungs. Uh, I would give a guest the book. Did this every tour. And got the quotes right, get the book. I did this, I think, for... I, mean, I have several hundred of these books that I gave away. I have a closet in Lebanon. Um, there may be 20 copies of this book. Because I used to buy them in bulk. And I'd buy them in advance, assuming that I had a string of tours to, to, to give. And I wanted to make sure I always had a copy of this book. And I always did. Antoine, at some point, uh, stopped. Sort of, they, they ran out of copies, and it took them several months to, to restock. I'd have to go to Virgin Megastore. Virgin would run out. I would uh, wander over to Dar Bistro, and Dar Bistro closed. 
But at that time, they would do a sort of a special order now and then, and it would take it would take some time though. So if I had a tour coming up, I'd, I'd be stuck. So on one occasion, I actually had to ask somebody who had won the book. Uh, I had to <laughs> I had to go visit them and sort of say, you know, I have a problem. Uh, I know I gave you this book last week. Congratulations. And I know it's sort of, uh, it may be signed, maybe, but uh, I need it because I need to, I have a tour coming up. And, you know, this was a, a very sweet sort of uh, sweet woman. She said, yeah, it's fine. You know, and I, I was like, no, 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 I'll, I'll get you a copy as soon as my shipment arrives. And it, it arrived and I ran back and I gave her the copy again so I you know I always made sure that you'd win the book and you'd keep the book never thought of racketeering where the same person would show up every tour and just sort of guess the quote and uh, get the book and then show up in the next tour I, I never uh, thought that smart but I was I was happy to to give this book to a lucky guest who could project that quote who could project Samir Asir uh it's it's it was my my contribution to what Samir Asir gave us it's not just a book it's not just sort of uh you know it's it's not a 600 page story that he left us with it's uh the dedication the determination to fight for Lebanon against all odds and I had these conversations with my father, uh, and I used to always make it a point that it's it's these voices, you know, when you lose them, you lose a lot. And it becomes, it's almost like the starting point is at a severe disadvantage. It's harder each time. And um, conversations that I thought would just be sort of, uh, they would never sort of have a, that would not, never carry that weight later because... Uh, just, uh, you know, I never thought that my father's assassination would be the last one in that string of assassinations. Um, Fouad Ajami, he, uh, he emailed me, I think it was the day or two days after my father's assassination. It was maybe maybe the day after but I got it this the, the next day so I'm burying my father in Martyrs Square and uh, you know I'm just going to say something here that when I brought the tour back to life I uh, I had to choose how to address Martyrs Square and I wrote a eulogy and I shared the eulogy on the tour when I brought it back to life two and a half years ago uh, that eulogy is episode 100 on the podcast. It's called Al-Burij. I, I, I made sure that I would address what happened to my father within the larger story of all that's happened in Martyrs Square. But I decided to keep the ending with Samir Asir. So you would hear the eulogy. 30-minute roller coaster journey of all that is Lebanese history. And I would address what happened to my father. But in a sense, I would skip, skip over 
skip over uh, the finale. You know, I, I, I wanted I wanted to make sure the tour, which at least the the passion for the tour is from Samir Asir. And I wanted to uh, to make sure that it ended with him. And it stayed that way. It continued to end with Samir Asir. So, uh, Fouad Ajami emails me. And I'm, I'm literally on my way to the hospital to... Uh, to bury my father. There you have it, a hospital with an ambulance. I, uh, I got a sentence. And I, I mean, Fouad Ajami would send these sort of very short emails, either a paragraph or maybe a few lines, Sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, but uh, he just knew how to measure each word. And he just honored my father in one sentence. And it's that kind of... Uh, like I, I, I don't know. All the things that were said about my father, I, I still think about uh, what he said. And uh, he just said what I needed to hear. Half a year later, uh, he's sick without, without people knowing. He's dying of cancer. And uh, shortly before his passing, I get another email from him. And it's a short, short email that ends with, Death has majesty. The idea that it heals with time strikes me as unpersuasive. I did not know that he was dying. I assumed he was referring to my father's assassination, and I never imagined that that was his way of saying goodbye. But that quote, I mean, that resonated with me so much, and I, I, I took it, and I held on to it, and I, I still think about it, and the, any moment I have to pause and reflect, that's that kind of quote that resurfaces. He's right. Um, you know, 15 years later, after Samir Asir's death, I, uh, anyone that appreciated him, let alone loved him and lived with him, I was very lucky. I, I did several episodes with his wife, Giselle Khouri, with his friend Malik Mruwi, and with his comrade, Ziad Majid, um, and other episodes that kind of, you know, bring him back to life through friends, through, through, uh, through ad admirers, whatever. Um, I still think about it, and it, it never goes away. And, uh, yeah, storytelling. I don't know if I'm doing it correctly at 8 in the morning. Maybe now it's closer to nine. Um, but I guess that there's a final point here, which is their stories. Anyone who deeply appreciated uh, Lebanon's story and what Beirut gave them, uh, 
and their attempt to give something back. Uh, I hope, I hope that we find a way to address what happened to them, because those wounds need to heal somehow. And this unjust way of losing people, it's not just untimely, it's unjust. Without it sort of, without it being tackled head on uh, and finding a way to, to, to heal. Uh, I think, uh, I don't know, I think there's a chapter in Lebanon's story that just doesn't end right. And, and I want to, I want to see, I want to live long enough to have that chapter end the right way because uh, it means a lot to me in a personal way and it means I think uh, the most to anyone who lost someone this way uh, through this type of violence uh, and their criminals get away with it in, in, in Lebanon. It's wrong and it, it needs to be addressed. Thank you for handling me this morning and I uh, I promise you uh, a lighter sort of uh, conversation uh, the next episode. So, thank you.